Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing fantastic, Neil. Can't wait to talk to our guests. A- absolutely. Big, big fan of Don Most. We know him from so many different projects, and then we're going to talk about his music. And Greg, as you were talking off air in the green room, you just remember so many memories growing up watching him. Oh, yeah. You know, with his with all of his friends, you know, hanging out at his best friend's house and going down to the shop and hanging out with, you know, people we can't talk about, but pretty amazing stuff. It was incredible. It was just one of my favorite times of uh, of growing up is, you know, between the mid 70s and mid 80s, you know, watching uh, watching Don and his pals. Yeah, Don, wouldn't you think, isn't that like crazy to think about just how it just lives on? A lot of your projects still live on all the time and people just watch it. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing Um, because it's been a long time and they, you know, have been playing that show for a very long time. So um, and and now it's all these years later and and with all the streaming channels, uh, there's, there's a bunch of opportunities to still watch the show and younger generations are being uh, still you know introduced to it so it's it's pretty cool all right go greg with questions for don yeah well you know don's been doing a lot of amazing things besides acting um you know music for sure right you did some directing i'd love to hear about either one of those which one do you want to talk about first um well i guess we could talk about um the directing and then head in and then segue into the music maybe that's cool um yeah. on the directing i don't know if i'm allowed to mention the names of of the projects i've done but people could look up on imdb if you're familiar with that uh, imdb.com it's the internet movie database and you could look up uh anyone the actor director producer and you could see what they've what they've done and sort of in chrono- chronological order. So um, I, I, I've done three independent films as a director and um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's been a while. I've, I've got some new projects I'm trying to get going so I could direct again. But, um, but if people look up, uh, like I said, they'll see the titles of the ones that I worked on as a director. One was a, very heavy drama, a pretty, um, pr- pretty powerful uh, drama, uh, which people might not have expected. But that's uh, that's what I, I enjoy doing. All all styles, you know, whether not just comedy, and um, as an actor and or director. And then the second one was more of a more of a comedy. It had some, it got a little more serious towards the end, but it was definitely more of a comedy. So um, yeah, people could check them out. Uh, they'll see they'll see the names and be able to uh, find them on Tubi and Amazon, all the the, the usual suspects. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the directing was a great experience. Did you learn a lot from the experience, you know, with that unbelievable cast of friends, uh, you know, how to become a director? learning the process being behind the scenes on watching all this action happen with so many geniuses on that set. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was so much talent, uh, you know, not only the cast, which was fab, you know, I mean, everyone, it was fabulous. Um, but, 
our director was um, a, a comic genius director by the name of Jerry Paris, and he and he started as an actor himself. Um, and getting to watch Jerry, and you talk to Ron Howard, he'll say he'll tell you how much, you know, uh, what an influence, what a great influence Jerry Jerry was on him as a director. Um, and so we learned a, a tremendous amount from just work, you know, just working with him and the and watching and watching it. If I wasn't in a scene, or if I wasn't, uh, you know, if I had the the ability to to the first two years we were shooting it like a movie. So if I you know if I was done for the day, I could sit uh, and I would I would sit and watch a lot of the other scenes, even though I could go home. But, I just wanted to soak it all in. And um, and then, of course, Gary Marshall was our executive producer. And uh, and Gary directed a bunch of our episodes. And, and then I, I had the opportunity to work with some other great directors, too. And I got to work with Jonathan. We worked. We were on the road and worked real closely. He loved collaborating with the actors. And so, you know, that experience was a was a tremendous one. And then I got to work with Ron. When Ron wanted to prove that he could direct, um, he asked me if he had an idea, and he said, "Would wanted to know if I'd like to develop the idea, and we could uh, turn it into a, a script." And he wanted me to play the lead, and he wanted, and we shoot it sort of on weekends because we were working on during the week. So we did, um, and we got about halfway th through the film, and then Ron got an assignment to direct his first film for Roger Corman, coincidentally. So, um, so I'd worked with Ron very closely in that capacity before he really was, um, before he started officially directing. So yes, I've, I've had a wonderful, the great opportunity to learn from uh, so many, uh, so many talented people. Mm. Well, you know, one thing I, that I kind of remember was, you know, around the time that, that your show was really taken off and uh, actually probably midway through, um, you know, Harrison Ford and uh, Suzanne Somers movie, you know, came out and uh, did, did you feel that that like added even more interest to, uh, I mean, to your show? Did it kind of accelerate it uh, more fans? And um, well, the, the timing actually was, it's interesting. Uh, Gary, Gary did a pilot, uh, back in originally in 71, I think it was, with Ron Howard and Anson Williams playing those same parts. Um, but it didn't sell. Uh, I think Marion was in it as the mom, but it was a different father, a different daughter. There was no Ralph. There was no uh, Fonzie. And it didn't sell. So then what happened was ABC is like, remember, well, wait a minute. We had a pilot about the 50s. Didn't we, you know, so they went back to Gary and said, we'd like to redo the pilot because the original pilot was softer. And um, and they and they didn't even know if Ron and Anson, they thought they might be too old to play those roles. And Gary was like, no, no, they could still do it. But they made uh, the network made Gary screen test them. And along with a bunch of other hopefuls like myself. So I was screen testing for Potsy <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but then they, Anson and 
Ron obviously has still got cast again. Um, and then the, the, the executives told my agent they liked my screen test so much they wanted to put me in the show and they were coming up they would create a character for me. Um, and there was a small uh, character had a small part in the first in the pilot. And they said, we'll give that to him and we'll that'll grow, you know, and he'll, he'll be a, a regular character. So that's how that happened. But in answer to your original question, sorry for digressing, for some people, it might have, depending on the timing of when they watched it mm. and kind, kind of influenced how our show, uh, the direction our show went. Excellent. Oh, that's that's really interesting information. It's really cool to understand and how things develop and how it became popular. Uh, like Greg, I would never have thought a show in the fifties would be popular in the seventies, right? But I guess we saw that in other shows later on. That was the first to do it. Then you look at the Waltons. Yeah. You look at all these other shows. They did the same thing. It was placed in a different time period. And it yeah. really, really turned out well. And it taught family values. I think that's the thing that I really like about that show, Don, is the family values that people are still watching, that there was respect, there was different things. They took things that, that are teaching people still today about family life and everything and respect. Definitely. And yes, that's true. The show did always have, I mean, it was a show that the family could watch together and, and really enjoy and feel comfortable um, and Gary, I think that was a, a real one of the great things he did. I don't know if I appreciated it at the time as much, but he always wanted um, to have without beating it over your head and being too preachy, uh, some, you know, something that represented those values that you're talking about and that supported that and and um, wove it into a, the show so that there was there was some meaning, be, you know, at the end of it, you felt good about uh you know how the characters went through what they went through and what they learned and what we were imparting to the audience you know um there was you know like when they saw what kind of influence here's an example like that Fonzie had so they put in an episode where Fonzie was going to get a library card and you know, he'd never he he'd never known about you know he'd never experienced that and it's like wow you can you can go in and get any of these books and you know so he got his library card and then i think they said the number of people that were getting library cards it increased by like you know some ridiculous amount of, of people now going and getting library cards so i mean that's just one example of of instilling something you know that like you talked about that had had uh something um uh, that you would look up to that you would want your kids to to know and to be exposed to, uh, and and if you look at some of those old, some of those episodes, you you could really see how how it was woven in there. But in a way that was still it was funny, it was still entertaining, and um, and it wasn't preachy or anything like that. Yeah, wow. Do you do you um do you guys still keep in touch with the cast? And do you guys? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I just spoke with Anson yesterday and we talk all the time we're best friends and um and i've been i've been in touch with ron and henry lately i mean we have been and um that's continuing um, i'm actually going to see henry on saturday because he's he's doing a tour for not, not his new book uh some other book 
I think there's a new book coming out. There's a new book coming out for him. I think that's potentially because I saw it in an advertisement when I was seeing yeah. it. Yeah, he's got a memoir that's coming out, but he's also uh, out touring some other children's book that he wrote with somebody else. And he's going to be in, you know, I'm in Colorado now and he's going to be near me. So we're going to get together. It'll be great to see him. So, yeah, definitely we stay in touch. Fantastic. Let's talk about the music now. Let's go. Yeah. Congrats on the uh, Grammy potential thing. So kind of go into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this the CD that that um, just came out, it's called New York High. And it's comprised. I had a CD about six years ago that um, another one that's jazz standards and big band kind of swing and and all the great, you know, some of the great American songbook uh, tunes. And it was called Mostly Swinging. And it was a really great experience and wonderful musicians and really turned out well. But we, I just did another one. We're still doing some of the jazz standards, but with a little more of a contemporary jazz feel as opposed to the big band. And turned out great. And it's what I'm excited about is it it did it made the Grammy ballot as album of the year in in the, it's in a category called uh traditional pop which is the kind of music that i'm talking about and um so it got on the to get on the ballot is a is a big deal and um the, the academy uh the voters for the grammys they're all uh, this week i think is uh, they're voting and it'll get down to the final you know five and hopefully mine makes that and then i'd be nominated so if anybody out there uh, is or knows any voting members of the Grammys, uh, I, I urge you or encourage you to listen to my album and for your consideration. Uh, people can get the album on iTunes and Spotify, Apple Music, and all of those, all of those platforms. So um, I'm, I'm excited. Just you know, getting to this stage was really cool, and um, we'll see what happens. What, what was like the big inspiration behind this particular album for you? Um, I don't know if that there was what the way it transpired was um, uh, somebody uh, that I really met online, um, and he 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 was friends with a with a record producer, pretty uh, you know guy who's very accomplished, and he said I think you two should meet. He said I think uh, it'd be great for both of you. Um, and it turns out he he's in the Nashville area, but he was out coming out to L.A. for something. So we we met, we had lunch, talked about music and and he, he heard my previous album, liked what I was doing and and said, yeah, let's it was his idea that we should do this one um, with a little bit more of a contemporary jazz setting. And um, and I, I really enjoyed working with him. We we worked we took a lot of time picking out the songs and and then then he had a a great guitar player arranger that he worked with to to set the sort of form for each song and what the arrangement would be and they had great musicians and and it, it was awesome a great experience and it, it turned out really well as a matter of fact um the the the, the album's called new york high but there's also a, a single track on the album called New York High and uh, it was released um, in the UK uh, last month 
um, they wanted to release it there first at official release. And it's on this chart called the heritage chart. Um, and it's moving up. It's, 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 it's like way up there in the charts right now in the UK. So that's kind of cool. And, um, so we'll see what happens over here, <laughs> you know, hopefully it'll do similar, similar kind of action here. All right. That's great. Thanks. Now, Greg has a final question for you, Don, and he asks all our celebrities this question. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah. So this is an important one for me so that I can improve my own life, but also more importantly for the people that hopefully get an opportunity to watch this interview with you, Don, uh, since you're such an inspiring character and, you know, touched so many people over the years. Um, so Don, well, thank you. you're welcome. Um, what's the most important thing in life you feel you've ever learned? Oh my gosh. The most important thing in life I've ever learned. Well, that's a heavy, heavy question. Um, I, I would say uh, the importance of family and, um, and, uh, and, and keep, and keeping yourself healthy, family and health. <laughs> those are, those are two, two things that are hitting me right now. So, and, you know, you asked me the same question a year from now, might maybe uh, they would still be up there, but there might be another new one. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but, but right now that's, what's hitting me. Yeah. That's why you're no longer in LA. That's different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's why I'm in Colorado to be near um, my daughter, who who uh, just had had a, a baby girl, and uh, my wife and I and our grandparents for the first time, and we wanted to be close. close That's fantastic. To them. Yeah. And then, so uh, can you still, based on, are you going to be doing more directing still, and be able to do any acting or more directing now? You, um, Probably more, ho hope some directing, but probably more acting. I, I've done more films in the last uh, three years than I'd done the previous 10. Um, I'm really busy. Um, I did, I think, about seven films in the last two years. And um, and I even just worked on one uh, two months ago. No, a month ago, because uh, it was a small independent film and we had a waiver. Uh, from SAG, we were allowed to shoot. So um, I I see a lot more, hopefully a lot more films in the future. Uh, I think we, I think we will. That's yeah. fantastic, Don. Once this gets through, I can't wait. I'll be celebrating for sure because, you know, television and movies are being hurt by this. But it's one thing that's the only plus is Netflix is getting certain series that did really well. They stopped showing, meaning like on some other network and Netflix is thinking of picking some of them up because of the popularity because oh. now people are watching older films older movies and they're like oh we love these and now opportunities are coming so i just think it's going to yeah. be a really a huge thing for you guys once it's over so i'm hoping yeah, yeah let's yeah. keep our fingers crossed by the end of the year it's over that's on the that's i sure I, I sure hope so yeah let's put that out there <laughs> i'm putting it out the universe it's going to happen all right tom best place you can get, find information on you where's the best place for you um I have a website, realdonimos.com, but um, I'm woefully behind in keeping it updated. Uh, I would say probably even better is to go to Facebook, Don Most, or, or Instagram, Don Most One, or Twitter, 
which is at most underscore Don. Those places would be good. We, free, we appreciate it, Don. Greg, this is fun. This is a lot of fun. We're definitely going to have a part two soon. Appreciate it, guys. Oh, great. Great being with you again, Neil. And, and Greg, nice meeting you. And thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that was a special simulcast of Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto. Greg Hanna. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast. I'm excited to my host, the Love is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? What's going on? I'm doing great, Neil. I hope you are, too. And I am so excited to introduce our guest, my new friend. I love him, T. Martin Bennett. He wrote an incredible book after hours and hours and hours. I can't even imagine how many hours of research. And it is called Wounded Tiger. And it is so good. And it's going to be a movie. And uh, Martin, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Well, great having you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I am curious. So tell us a little bit about the book so that people understand. But I'm curious how uh, how it affected you overall, too. Well, Wounded Tiger is a story of hope, ultimately. And, and it's a story of hope and hopeless situations. So, I mean, all of us have been in that place at some point or another, but not as bad as what happened with, you know, the guy who led the attack in Pearl Harbor. I mean, he could have died on many occasions, as you would expect. Uh, it involves a guy named Jake DeShazer, an American who ends up bombing Japan, becomes a prisoner of war, tortured, solitary confinement, people getting shot, people dying of exposure. His situation was hopeless. They expected all the prisoners of war to be just executed because they would tell on the Japanese the Covell family fled from the uh, from Japan into the Philippine Islands, and then they sent their kids to the U.S., and then they expected to be safe in the Philippines because MacArthur was there, 100,000 troops were there, but the Japanese came in, they flooded the island. Of course, you know, uh, MacArthur fled. It was, a, it was a, a total defeat, and so their lives were in danger. They fled for their lives, and they were being pursued by the Japanese. So everybody in this story was in dire straits and circumstances at one point or another, but and you think there's no way this can work out for good it's just not possible but yet it does so my takeaway is there is no situation so bad that god doesn't have a secret way to make it work out for something amazingly positive that is amazing it's such an amazing story every bit of everybody's story because it's not just one person it's you you um look at all three of the people that you mentioned and how their lives intertwine and how they cross. And, you know, we don't hear a lot about the Japanese end of things with World War II. Most of the books and things out there are all about Hitler and what's going on in Germany. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is that Japanese culture is very distant from American culture. We're considered a Western culture. Germany is a Western culture, European uh, Japan is in the far, far east. That's one. Two, the Germans considered, they believed they were going to conquer the world, so they documented everything. So there's tons and tons of footage. The Japanese did not do that, so there's very little film footage. So any documentary you get is going to have the same old, you know, scant footage. They just, there's not much about that. But I think it's had to do with the, with the otherness of Japanese culture. We talk about the six million Jews uh, in concentration camps, but you hear very little mention of the 10 to 20 million Chinese civilians who were just executed point blank. It wasn't for war. It was just execution. Quite horrific and not really uh, mentioned much in the history books. 
But uh, but a question I had when I was in high school, I, I wondered why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor? Were they trying to take over the United States? That didn't make any sense. Why are they out in Hawaii anyway? What's the, I didn't get it at all. And that really drove me on some of my research. And the more I learned, the more I figured out, okay, I get it. So a funny thing, that a side effect that's happened with the book is when people are reading it from the Japanese perspective, being attacked by the Americans, I've had numerous people say they were kind of conflicted. Of, they wanted Fujita, you know, to make it through this part of the war. And the Japanese, they were kind of like, they didn't know who to root for, you know? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you get to know everybody so personally. Yeah, once you know them, people, we, we, we care about, once we care about people, we want to see them succeed. But of course, we don't want to see someone succeed in doing something bad. I remember one time there was a, I lived in Tucson, Arizona, and a rabbit shot across the street, and then a bobcat shot across the street. And suddenly, I wasn't sure if I was rooting for the rabbit to get away or the bobcat to catch the rabbit. <laughs> I was confused. <laughs> Yeah, I think I would have been rooting for the rabbit because I like to root for the underdog. But, you know, I, I can see where there'd be a confliction yeah. with that for sure. So this book has been out, but this is a new edition that's coming out on November 7th. What What is the difference between this and what's been out yeah. there? Great question. So I began the research 15 or actually 18 years ago on this story. When I novelized the first time, I did, I just take the screenplay and novelized a book form. But when I came toward the second edition, again, this is back in 2013, I started gathering all kinds of new information, including photographs, and I started putting photos in. So between 2016 and this edition, uh, Fuchita's old, his Fuchita's son named uh, Yoshia died, and he had an entire catalog of thousands of documents and photos and everything that was bequeathed to Stanford University. And so I went out to Stanford and I spent a couple of days there and, and I went online as well, going through every single photo, every single document and finding things that are like, wow, I didn't even know these things existed. At the same time, there are hundreds and hundreds of changes and additions to this new book besides the new book cover. So one of the things we have I don't think anybody on the planet has. And that is when Fuchita was coming into Pearl Harbor, the code word back to the fleet carriers that they had achieved surprise was tiger, 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 or Torah, Torah, Torah. We all know those words, but we don't know what they mean. <clears throat> well, I've been working on this for years. I've never heard anybody mention that this telegraph, the physical piece of paper still existed. So one of my researchers found it in a museum in Japan and we contacted them to get permission to use it. And they were very hesitant. They said they want to make sure this was not an anti-Japanese book. So what we did is we sent them reviews from Japanese nationals, including the associate producer of The Last Samurai, a woman named Yoko Narahashi, quite well known and quite respected. And she loved the book front to back. So we sent those reviews to the museum. They said, great. They gave us a high resolution image. It's in the book. I don't think anyone has ever printed that before. And to see it in person while reading the book and seeing this stuff take place is like, wow, you feel like you're just there while it's happening and you're touching history. Wow, that you know, is so cool. I, I was going to say something, Kim. You know, when you listen to this specifically history and how history brings up different things, to see that perspective as you talked about with the Japanese and kind of looking at it from the other side of ending a war that needed to be ended, but the, the the pain, the suffering everyone went through, I think it really gives you a good understanding and perspective of what war brings. 
in this yeah, book. You see, you see two things in, in Wounded Tiger, the power of hatred and how it destroys individuals and nations and the power of love and how that transforms people. And where does that love come from? That was Fuchida's question, literally, that he wrote down. Where does this love come from is a great question because it leads to a really great answer. You know, as you mentioned, uh, what was found in the museum and they finally let you use it, that is one of 300 or so, right? Uh, photos in the book. Yeah. So yeah. it's like that times 300. Like, Correct. Uh, because so little has been around, that must have taken forever to it gather. I, my, one of my sons said, Dad, you got to put pictures in this. I said, Tyler, you don't realize how hard it is to find these things. But he said, you got to do it. And he was absolutely right. So we went through, we found them. I went to universities. I went to archives. I went to museums. I sent emails, phone calls and everything to get these things. And some of these things took a long time just to get permission to get these things. And uh, we finally got it all done. And the net result is people say they just feel like they're there while these things are happening. Yeah, that's so cool. So getting permission, did you have any obstacles? Like were there some things that you wanted that you didn't get permission to have? No, we we got everything we wanted. Uh, we had to pay for some of these things because they were copyrighted photos, but that was very few. Most of the stuff was just finding it in the first place. But when you come across these pictures, it's just like I said, you know, it's like finding gold of, wow. Uh, there's pictures I found that I did not even conceive that we would have a picture of such a thing. I can't say what these things are because they're kind of giveaways. But you'll see when you go through the book of like, that's amazing. Is that the place? Yes, that is the actual place. Wow, that's so cool. All right. So you've got this book and this and these incredible stories, and it's written much more like a novel than a history book. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because what happened was after I wrote the screenplay, screenplays are written in the present tense. You know, John walks across the door. John opens the door. Present tense. But fiction, nonfiction is written. You know, he did this. They did that. They went there. It's kind of like yawn. It's all you're looking at it from a distance. But fiction is all happening now. You know, the flames burst through the door. They screamed out, don't do that. And you feel very engaged. So what I decided to do was to use the format of fiction, but a nonfiction story. So they call it a nonfiction novel. This is what Truman Capote did in his book, In Cold Blood, decades ago, a nonfiction story. The difference is, not between mine and his, but the difference is that it's not just uh, artistic license making things up like Titanic and DiCaprio. That's a fictional story that takes place within the context of a true story. This is an all true story. And I really, I elaborated on the introduction of the new book because I wanted people to know how much went into the meticulous uh, research and verification and vetting of everything in this book to the point that I write, and I'll tell you now, the essence of every scene in this story is true and much is difficult to believe, even for myself. I had to go back three and four times to just make sure, did that really happen like that? And it did. And it's, and it's fun, it's encouraging, but it can also be life-changing. Wow, yeah, no kidding. And I'd like to talk about that part of it. So great stories, uh, great true stories. It's a great book. It's so fun to read. You you know people that have sat down and read it in one sitting, even though it's a lot of pages, because it's so engaging. But it's also life-changing. There's also life uh, transformation that can happen while you read this book. Yeah, my yeah, my heart for the story is is <clears throat> I hope that people who read the book or see the film in the future would say I'm not as bad as those people are. They killed people. They you know did terrible things, tortured, and everything else. But 
somehow God came into their life and changed their life. If he can change their life, he can probably change my life too. What did they do and how did they do it? I want to know. And you see that in front of your eyes, it's not a teaching or a lesson. It's an example and a demonstration of how it all happens. Uh, yeah, so true. People. Gives hope to people. Yeah, which hope hope is something that we so desperately want a better need. life. Who doesn't want to be happy? <laughs> no kidding. Who doesn't want hope for sure? And that's yes. what this is. Yeah. Well, so, and there's such such richness in um how they even came to learn about Jesus or really figure out there is a God. Correct. So, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. You can read the first chapters for free at woundedtiger.com. You can read, I think, seven or eight chapters. And the book is not available yet. It's a, It will be available for a pre-order pretty soon at woundedtiger.com. But it is a very positive story. I found it, it appeals to people, young, old, male, female, uh, people who are devout Christians, people who hate God and hate the Bible. One guy who read it was the head of an atheist club, and he loved the book and sponsored me on Kickstarter when I first started out. So you'd be surprised how many people find themselves engaged in this compelling story. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, how did it change you personally? Like, what did this do for you personally? Well, <clears throat> you know, all of us have experienced things in our lives that are painful and we wish didn't take place. And in going through this story, I realized it's in that crucible of horrible conflicts that really the best things happen. That's where they happen. So I've learned to embrace things that are conflicts and difficulties because, you know, look at King David, his life, he's running for his life, living in caves, trying to figure out how to eat. But those were the best years of his life, writing the Psalms and all these accomplishments and all these beautiful things. When he's in the palace and everything's great, his life just goes downhill very rapidly. So it's like, you know, be careful what you wish for, because it's the it's that crucible of difficulties that really where the payday is and that uh, you, that's where the Lord really comes and does great and wonderful things. So I'm not looking for a difficult life. I am not. But when I go through these difficulties, I now embrace them. And that I'd say is how one thing has changed in my life from the, from the story. Wow, that's so cool. You know, you mentioned love earlier, and I'm curious your take on on the love portion of it. Yeah, somebody asked me, is this, is there a love story in this in this book? And I said, well, there is, but it's not your traditional romantic love story. And he goes, well, then it's not a love story. However, I've had people write, and one of the reviews that I put in the front of the book from a reader is that it's the most powerful love story he's ever read because love is not really an emotion. It is a choice. And when people decide to do something to help others, that's a loving thing. A guy texted me today. He had a flat tire. And he said the guy in whose house he was in front of came out there, helped him, bought him a new tire. He said that was amazing. So love costs something. But the greater the offense, the greater the love. And so with Peggy Covell and Jake DeShazer, Fuchita, horrific things are being done. The amount of love it takes to overcome these things is gigantic. That's why... Fuchida was asking, where does this love come from? Because Peggy was loving and went out of her way to love her enemies in a situation that most people would think they would hate them forever. So that is this power of love is, is quite powerful. I had someone who read an advanced copy of the book, which you have right now. She said she was just surprised that she was just 
weeping tears over this story of how powerful and awesome it was. I've heard that many times. I had a grown man say, hey, Martin, this story is a really great story, but it kind of gets you. I said, what do you mean gets you? He goes, well, you know. And I thought, oh, yeah, the emotions. Yeah, he was not prepared for that emotional response to this story. Yeah, and well. And that's love. I would imagine everybody has an emotional response to this story. And yes, then that is love. That was such a great explanation. I like that. And uh, what if you were to give some advice, you know, after after writing this, after n- knowing these people intimately, what, what advice would you give to other people when it comes to love? Or it comes to other people? Love is a choice. We can all make it. And if you take that one step, they say, give him an inch, you'll take a mile. But the Lord does that. If you give the Lord an inch of I will love my enemies or whatever the difficulty is, he will bring in the mile of progress that you think is impossible. I've seen it happen in this book. I've seen it happen in my life. And I'd like to see it in everybody's life because we all face people who we need to be, who we need to forgive. And we all need forgiveness as well. So it's a two-way street and it does nothing but good, but there it requires uh, an element of humility to say, I've screwed up. I, I'm I'm a jerk. I should not have done that. And the Lord is close to the humble. He's far from the proud. So if you're humble, you've got blue sky in front of you. Everything is possible. All right. Fantastic. Best place people can pick up the book is go where? Well, woundedtiger.com, you can read the first chapters free and there's information to pre-order the book. It will be released on November 7th, but it'll be available to pre-order on the website. You can go to Amazon as well. You'll find it for pre-order in about a week or so. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Love Is Podcast and the Neil Haley Show, guys. Take care. Appreciate it, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. We're back to Authors Corner on the Toll Education Network. Again, tolltutor.net for more information. Twitter, tolltutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook, LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, tolltutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, Google+. And uh, I have had the opportunity to interview many uh, celebrity athletes, and but not such a legendary coach. Somebody that has so many unbelievable stories. For him to be able to take the time to talk to me today, it's an absolute honor. Uh, thank you, Triumph Books, and I want to welcome the program, the author of Buckeye Wisdom, Insight, and Inspiration from Coach Earl Bruce. Coach Bruce, thanks for calling, and how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm uh, on a little retreat down in Florida for a couple months, but uh, and looking forward to it if it warms up down here a little bit. Uh, but that being said, uh, yeah, I, I, we just... We got through a great football season, that's for sure. Oh, Just a great one. Oh, my. Yeah. An absolutely amazing one. To win the national championship brings you back to the days uh, when you were an assistant with Ohio State and saying, oh, my, I can't believe how this uh, storied season happened. And I guess because you were a definite mentor to Urban Meyer, this was just awesome to see, wasn't it? Oh, yes. This was a, this was a great season in the sense that, when the when we lost to Virginia Tech, we we were down the bottom of the the bottom of everything as far as uh, our program. We thought losing, and uh, but we had young kids that were very determined and improved almost every week thereafter, and really started really hitting their peak when we went to the playoff championship in uh, against Wisconsin at Indianapolis, and then followed it with a. A great win a few weeks later against uh, Alabama, and then uh, overcome that uh, last game with Oregon. 
after four turnovers, we were uh, on the top of the world to win at the end. Yes. Uh, and kids did a great job, a great job and a great coaching job. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it, it, it was an amazing experience. And I think it's a great timing for your book, isn't it, <laughs> uh, Coach Bruce? Especially when you probably thought, okay, I'm going to have the book come out again with some more stories and some interesting things. And then this run, and you're like, wow, uh, being yeah. part of Ohio State Buckeye history already. And now uh, more and more opportunities to talk about. Urban Meyer and all the other coaches that you mentored, for sure. Well, uh, that's that's great, and I've had a lot of good coaches, both in high school and college, because I coached high school for uh, 13 years, and we, we were very successful there, but uh, uh, that takes coaches and good players, and that's what it takes to win, and that's what you, you, you know you have if you win the championship. But, but that being said, a lot of stories in the book are about, I put some new ones in about Coach Hayes and about uh, uh, the mentoring of him. I mean, he was my mentor and um, a great man. Uh, he's a tough guy. He, he gives you toughness in, in the approach to game of football, which I think is pretty important. You see toughness. Someone once said to me that uh, if they coach football, they'd want speed to win. And I agreed with him about speed, but I also said I found out that sometimes we didn't have the speed, but when it came to the fourth quarter, we had the toughness that took the game away from them, and we won it. So I think toughness plays right up there along with discipline and leadership and a lot of other words, but that's that's what it takes to win a, win a national title. It so, takes leadership, it takes discipline, it takes toughness, it takes speed, and there's no doubt about it. And to overcome adversity, did uh, Coach Woody Hayes teach you that as well, to co- overcome that adversity, especially when things seem tough, as we talked about this year with Ohio State, with that loss to Virginia Tech? They didn't give up, for sure. Well, no, they didn't give up. You're right. you got to come overcome adversity sometimes. But I think Coach Hayes said it best. It's best to avoid that <laughs> by being ready all the time. And if you're going to be undefeated, that that's you have got to win – one of the games has got to be won in a close situation with great play and great response to being in that negative part of, of the game when you're losing. And obviously to overcome that and win a national title is, is something. And I think that uh, tells you that, that the toughest team normally does win because that's how you overcome it. Mentally and physically tough people are, are very tough to beat. So did Coach Hayes teach you that in practice to have that uh, mental toughness, to teach that in practice, and that's such a huge part of it going into the games for sure? Oh, our practices were tough, buddy. Our practices were tough. On on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, they were tough. They don't they, they can't do that now because on they, they don't have enough scholarship. They don't have enough people. And if you get a few injuries, you're really hurting. So they probably take it easy that way. But I, I, I still say if you're tough and you get through the injury crisis and you get through that, you fight through that, you don't lose anyone. We lost two great quarterbacks right at the beginning of the season. And then, not, not right at the beginning, one at the beginning and one after it was over. And, and we had a third one in reserve that really responded to the pressures of being thrown into the leadership position. And he did well for a guy that hadn't played much before that. 
Oh, definitely. He, he de- uh, it's amazing what happens. And now, you know, you have this co- quarterback controversy. But one thing that when you talk about uh, Coach Hayes, you talked about toughness. And uh, how did he command respect, would you say, Coach Hayes, that taught you, especially when you became a head coach as well, and then to mentor uh, other great coaches that we'll talk about a little bit in this interview. But how did he command respect? Because we think he, great teachers command respect, but also are willing to give that respect. So to teach toughness, you got to have respect from your players, right? Oh, yeah. He, he got respect with the toughness on the field and the kindness and carrying what, what went on off the field as far as caring about yourself, what you do and what, what you live like and, and uh, in your classrooms, how you approach graduation and get there. And then the next thing is to continue to, to be nice and sweet when you're in their behavior when you're off the field, but really tough when you get on the field. And they realize that that happens, that, that that happens, and they they accept that. But they they want to they want to be rewarded at times for good effort and and uh, with a pat on the back, not a kick in the butt. And that's uh, that's probably what you get. But Woody used to think that if you ever got big headed, then then there was no compliments anymore. There were there were more kicks in the butt. So uh, you had to watch him. You had to know him because it was a it was a great team with him. That, and he wanted to win all the time. He put the effort and, and uh, hard work before uh, resting and, and taking days off. We're ta- he, he was not, not much for that. We're talking to legendary co- coach Earl Bruce about his book, Buckeye Wisdom, Insight and Inspiration from Coach Earl Bruce. And uh, Coach Bruce, let's talk about Buckeye Wisdom. You got the wisdom from Coach Hayes, for sure, and and from your experience at coaching high school football and all that. When you saw people walk through your doors uh, that you worked with, like Urban Meyer, Jim Tressel, Pete Carroll, and Nick Saban, what can you give me? Like, a, what did you share in a one little tidbit you shared with Urban Meyer that's helped him be a great coach? Oh, I think probably hard work. But the, that being said, he came with a lot of things that were were good. He he had a mind that he wanted to be successful. He uh, was a great recruiter. He worked hard, and when he needed to spend time with a player that needed a lot of help, he did that. He and his wife both uh, helped get players through when when he started back in uh, oh in 1990 with me out at uh, out at uh, Colorado State, and we won uh, that year. We were a nine and three football team and went to a bowl game and and beat Oregon in the bowl game 33-32, which was a great victory for Colorado State at that time, and because it was their second bowl game and their first winning bowl game, so. That was rather interesting, and and then uh, I think he he just uh, kept going. And when uh, the time came that someone called me and said, "Hey, we need a coach at Bowling Green," and I said, "Well, there's one guy over at Notre Dame by the name of uh, Myers uh, that, that uh, can really do the job for you, Urban Urban Myers." I said, "Go get him, and you have a winner." They got him. They had two great seasons. He went to Utah. From Utah, he went to uh, Florida, and he set a great record down in Florida. And then he picked up here, and 
I think he's done an outstanding job here. When you look at their record, there's no one has ever had three years record like he had. Woody would have really been endeared if it had started like that. He had a fight for four years to get a, a winning championship in 1954. So that, with that being said, uh, uh, you got to you got to have the, the personality to and the know with all of a good many things. Absolutely, and, and, and he did. He did, and every, every guy that you see is about the same way. That's a success. They work hard. They're knowledgeable. They know what they're doing, and they know, like the game of football. They like kids. Uh, you, you name everything that you can see. Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll was with me for two years. One at uh, uh, Iowa State, and one at uh, Ohio State. And he, he, I saw he he was moving on. He he went as an assistant. Uh, uh, with uh, 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 my guy uh, uh, from Notre Dame. Oh God, it's just my mind now. But he went with Notre to Notre Dame at North Carolina State and was was a was a miracle guy. You know. Yeah. What made Pete Carroll so special? What he is special now in the NFL is his players love him just like they love Urban Meyer, and I'm sure they yeah. loved you, Coach Bruce, as well. Did you? Did you kind of uh, guide Pete in that way to understand that the relationships with the players, especially coaching, is so important for them to go out there and win for you? Because if they don't respect you, if they don't like you, nine times out of ten, they're not going to go to war for you, in my opinion. And I'm sure that was a one part of Buckeye wisdom as well, wouldn't you say, to really have uh, great relationships with your players. And that's what Pete Carroll definitely has. You have to say this, so. Every player that you coach is different from the other one. I mean, there's not all, they don't all come out the same. Some people don't like to do this. Some people don't like to work hard. Some people don't mind it if they're, if they, if they, uh, know it's fair, hard work, that you do it at times. And there's times that you are not in hard work or, or labor, but you've always got to have a medium here. You've got to have someone uh, that is a leader that keeps the players, I mean, some player that speaks up and says the things that need to be said sometime when practices get tough, when practices get hot, when, when, when it's not nice to be out on the field, it would be nice to be in the cold shower. But that, that's, you, you don't win that way. If they all put that together, you don't win that way. No. You win with, the, with what you give to the game. And you got to like the game. you got to like contact. you got to like... Uh, uh, to hit, you've got to like to be, well, and then everybody's got to like to, when the game starts, you've got to play the game, and you've got to play at a high rate, of, and you've got to play to win. And you that takes great effort and, and great skill and uh, great timing. Uh, and that's what you've got to put together as a coach, and the players got to assume that they will be better on the field if they if they listen to the coach and take coaching, and and if they do, I, I think that's the, that makes them a success and, and the program a success. And the, and I love that point you talk about. Each individual player is different. As a teacher, uh, Coach Bruce, I see that all the time. As a teacher and a consultant in, in in education, and also when I've taught other people, adults as well in business, that you gotta look at each individual differently you can't expect one size fits all and it sounds like that's definitely not the way you coach you really look at each individual and how they fit into that team perspective it sounds like 
Yeah, I think that not everyone is the same. That's what you've got to assume. And something that strikes a player and gets him to play doesn't doesn't meet the test for the other one. But a pat on the back, when it's all over, for a good job done, is greatly appreciated by any player that plays hard. And uh, they know that that means something. And if you don't, if you don't say it very often, but you say it when it's great, that means a heck of a lot to them because they 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 evaluate. Uh, but well, you, you also uh, know when to uh, ball them out, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. Get them get them ready to practice and say challenge them to do something really best better. I think the thing that wins great football games is when great players play up. Of themselves. Yes. When they go out there and play, you say, oh boy, I don't recognize this team. They are really playing today, but they're playing number one in the country, maybe, and they are really going after them, and they win the football game. And you really think, I wish we could do that every week. You know what I mean? But, but sometimes you've got to play above yourself. When you meet a challenge with someone that you want to really beat, or it was a Michigan game or uh, a game with a team that's well-ranked with a lot of great players, that's that's the satisfaction of playing football when you end up with a great victory. Well, I think that a lot of coaches listening to this program, especially that I will share to across my, uh, my audience and stuff, really need to pick up this book for sure because of the wisdom that you're able to bring from learning from your from your mentors to who you mentored and how their success and what leads to success. Cause a lot of times coaches think it's all about them and it can't be all about them. You got to have preparation and look at uh, specific things. Now, when you talk about Nick Saban, Saban uh, sometimes is kind of considered a little different than when we talk about urban Meyer and Pete Carroll, when you worked with Nick, what made him special? Cause really he, he's a winner. He wins wherever he goes, but he has a, maybe he's a little different in my opinion than Urban Meyer and Pete Carroll. Am I wrong about that? And what type of things did he take from Woody? I mean, took took from you, uh, Coach Bruce, that gave him that well, I, expert. Yeah. Well, I think he worked with a lot of good men. There's no doubt about that in his career. He he was a and he, and he was in positions of uh, like Michigan State and LSU. And now he's, and then he went to the pros for a while. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, one of the big issues is that he got one of the great jobs in the SEC, Alabama. Uh, the Bear was pretty successful there. I think there's a lot of likeness. Uh, he doesn't mince words. He's very, very uh, uh, knowledgeable about the game of football and a good, good teacher of the game of football. And he plays tough football. He he really beats you by not making mistakes and being aggressive with the football uh, and having good football players. I think that's that's the key to success in football. And he has it had it all. He had had that all all, all the time a little bit. I remember the time he came down here from Michigan State and and beat beat us uh, as as a head coach. And that was a great victory for him when he was at Michigan State to beat us down here. And then one day he was an assistant at Michigan State, and he came down here the last season. I think I coached in 1987 or something like that. And he, uh, they had a great football team at Michigan State. He was assistant 
in the, in the backfield, and he helped uh, them tremendously with the great victory, a 13-7 victory over us in our stadium, which is a tough place for people to win. So, uh, you know, if you, if you do things the way it should be done in football, if you care about the players and you care about the game and you do it uh, in a right way with the teaching and, and coaching and, and helping and, and, and keeping them all uh, a little bit satisfied with what the way the program's going and challenging them to be the better football player that they can, the best football player they can be, I think it, it becomes uh, a great a great uh, relationship with young men. And that's what you're building. I mean, when it ends up, you, 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 you've got a great relationship because you, you, you had winners and, and, and they won. Now, can you define Buckeye wisdom for me, uh, Coach Bruce? How would you define it? Buckeye define wisdom. It? Yeah. Well, I think it's just stories about football players and stories about people and how they react to things and what they think. And uh, sometimes it's all good and sometimes it might be a little ruffled. But basically speaking, the, the point of the book is that if you win with people, you win with good football players, you win with good good people again, I say, and, and, and then that, sometimes it's just a matter of keeping them good and getting the most out of them and, and making them challenge themselves and push themselves to being a success if they want to be. And if they want to be, they're going to they're going to be it, and 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 they're going to like it. Uh, everybody likes success, and and I can tell the stories of successful guys. You don't tell many stories about unsuccessful people, <laughs> right? You tell them about successful people. People could see those specific characteristics and take on that opportunity. And and you and I'm sure you've been enjoying going out and promoting this book for sure with the win, as we talked about with Ohio State, and getting to tell those stories again because. Uh, that that's very very important, and we can purchase the book at triumphbooks.com, Amazon, any bookstore for sure. And then also, do you have any place we can find information on you, Coach Bruce? Do you have anything? Do you a website or uh, social media or anything? No, I, no, I think you can just go to the uh, to the. I go to the telephone every time and put Earl Bruce in and, and get it up, and I read it, and I think, oh God, is that me? <laughs> <laughs> well, and continue to enjoy the weather in Florida. I Hopefully, get get, yeah. I want to get reinforced. You know, <laughs> if you ever want to get reinforced, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I hope that the weather gets better for you in Florida. Uh, at least it's a little warmer than what we're dealing with. But I'm sure it'll warm up soon. And enjoy your uh, time in Florida, and and, and, and enjoy watching. Hey, you're in my hometown. You know that, don't you? No, I don't. Did not know that. Really. Pittsburgh is my home. I was born the first 11 years I spent in Brentwood and Carrick and, and up in Mount Washington with my relatives and with my my family. And I tell you what, I am a mentioned wood guy. And, and I, 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 I say things just like I did a long time ago in Pittsburgh. And I recruited Pittsburgh when I went to Ohio State, and I never enjoyed anyone as much as I did, even after they lost. The real thing about Pittsburgh to me is they lost the, the steel mills and they built something else. They got another, not many towns have been able to do what Pittsburgh's done to come out of something like losing all the jobs and come out like smelling like a rose with the great financial 
well, place that it's been and the great town that it's been. They are tough people in western Pennsylvania. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's unlike any other town, trust me. I've traveled all over the country, yeah. and it's unlike it anywhere. Is not, yeah. uh, it is good. You know, the greatest football players at one time in this country all came out of the area from Alquipa and and uh, and uh, Denora and all those places that came through the, the valley and so on. 